Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Vital Science. Since the discovery of DNA's helical structure and subsequent cracking of the human genome, we've seen a rise in molecular technologies that are driving laboratory practice and clinical translation. In the past 20 years, these advances have resulted in an ability to alter genetic pathways on our quest to understand and cure disease. As you'll hear in a bit, molecular manipulation has been around for decades, with scientists first modifying the genes of bacteria. You may have heard of one such technology, clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats, by its more common name, CRISPR. But what is CRISPR exactly? That's what we'll dive into today. To provide some background, CRISPR uses a synthetic guide RNA molecule and an enzyme, typically Cas9, from the bacterial immune system to edit messenger RNA. Now a common practice in labs around the world, CRISPR is laying the foundation for breakthroughs in agriculture, veterinary medicine, and drug development. So how are people using this exciting in vitro technology? Our host, Gina Mullane, sat down with our resident experts, Executive Director of Discovery Sciences, Dr. David Fisher, and Manager of our CNS portfolio, Dr. Karina Perator, to talk about the history, applications, and potential of CRISPR. Welcome to the Vital Science Podcast to my guests, David Fisher and Karina Perator. Karina, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, thank you, Gina. I'm a product manager in neuroscience discovery at Charles River Labs. I've been here for a little over two years now. Wonderful. Uh, tell us about your background. How did you find yourself as a product manager at Charles River? Sure. So I studied neurochemistry for my PhD and then moved on to an academic postdoc in neuroscience. From there, an industry postdoc in neuroscience where I worked in iPS-derived um, differentiation protocols for neurons and did a little bit of gene editing using CRISPR. And um, from there, moved into the commercial side of science, where I'm now helping to facilitate crosstalk between the different business units at Charles River Labs and help enhance visibility of our neuroscience portfolio. Wonderful. Sounds like a fun job you have there. It and is. David, <laughs> David, welcome. Can you please share your background with us as well? Thank you, Gina. Yes, of course. Yes, so I've, I've got a PhD in molecular genetics, and uh, similar to Karina, I, uh, I went and did a postdoc in neuroscience uh, before uh, moving into uh, industry. And I've been with Charles River Labs for uh, 15 years now, uh, where I, I really work in the early stages of drug discovery, trying to, uh, to help design programs and, and move them forward towards the clinic. And is that work rewarding, David? It is. And, and especially nowadays, um, some of the drug discovery programs um, can happen so fast that you can actually um, see drugs move into the clinic uh, in just a couple of years. Wow. Who would have thought that? Well, it's wonderful to have you both here today for a unique format of our podcast. Uh, we're going to have a conversation on the exciting topic of gene therapy. So our series on in vitro technologies that have changed the world led us to both of you to share your knowledge and perspective on this exciting technology that's rapidly advancing disease treatment. So I'll start with you, David. Can you explain what this technology allows scientists to do and why it is adventitious to other gene editing tools? Yeah, so we were going to discuss uh, CRISPR-Cas9 technology as a, as a gene editing platform, as sort of the next generation of, of, um, of gene therapy. 
and the the real advantage over other technologies is is the versatility that you can really design to home it in on particular genes particular mutations and do all kinds of tricks in cells both in this the lab in in cell culture but also uh, in vivo and and of course a lot of our our clients and collaborators are now progressing into clinical trials as well. It does seem like a pretty common practice nowadays. It seems that genetic engineers have designed systems to snip DNA at any desired location for a while, but it required scientists to assemble protein to hone in, like you mentioned, on every new target sequence, which could be a very tedious process. And then comes along CRISPR. And this technology was interesting mostly to microbiologists, but it has now become ubiquitous in biology labs over the past few years. I'm wondering, David, if you might be able to elaborate a little bit on what the hype is for CRISPR specifically and maybe how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, as you said, uh, before CRISPR-Cas9, there were some other technologies that, that allowed you to, in principle, make these edits in in cells, um, take out particular sequences, insert sequences, but it would be a very laborious process because you'd have to design zinc finger proteins or or talons to snip particular sequences, and you may need to screen different variants to find the ones that work best, and then you could perform your gene editing um, experiments. But with, with CRISPR, you basically look up the sequence that you want to edit, you order a guide RNA um, to match that sequence, and you go transfect it with, with Cas9. So the enzyme is universal, um, and it's programmed with an RNA molecule. So by, by changing the sequence of the RNA molecule, you change it to whatever sequence you want to address. And, and that is the basic difference. You don't need to change the enzyme. The enzyme is the same. It's a constant. You just change the little tool that homes it into the right sequence. And that's basically why the, the two Nobel Prize winners won last year for that, that exact technology, right? Yeah, so Jennifer Dudna and Emmanuel Charpentier won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2020. And what, what of course typically happens with Nobel Prizes is that uh, these are awarded decades after these discoveries were made. Um, In this case, it's within a decade. So I think uh, the researchers did most of the the research that this prize was awarded for in 2010, 2011, 12. Um, So we're less than a decade away from that. And I think the reason that the Nobel Prize was awarded so quickly is that not only is this is a truly innovative platform, um, but it's also a very robust technology. Tens of thousands of researchers are using this day in, day out in their lab and coming up with all kinds of different variations on the same theme. Um, but the basic principle, this RNA-guided genome editing technology that that was the discovery that that is a a Nobel Prize was awarded for. Dr. Fisher notes that Nobel Prizes in scientific disciplines, typically like chemistry, come years after ground has been broken. 
Presumably, this is because the number of researchers doing great work has grown exponentially, and it could take years to validate some of these discoveries. What's truly novel and revolutionary? The awarding of the 2020 Nobel Prize to Dudna and Charpentier draws attention to the fact that CRISPR is a game-changing technology, one that lays the foundation for a whole new approach to therapeutic discovery and development. As you'll hear in a bit, Dr. Fisher describes the value of CRISPR beyond gene therapy to improve the way we screen drug candidates. So that makes sense that thousands and thousands of researchers are looking at CRISPR now. And do you think it's because of that transition from the discovery in bacteria to mammalian cells? Yes, so obviously um, there are lots of researchers that that do uh, incredible work in in microbiology, but the number of researchers studying human cells or animal cells is is significantly larger. Um, And it was always relatively straightforward to make edits in bacteria, but it was always extremely difficult to make genetic edits in mammalian cells like human cells. So clearly this has really changed um, the game significantly, and that's why it's such a a popular technology. In addition to just making single gene edits, this technology also allows you to do large library screens looking for novel function associated with genes, very similar actually to the uh, RNAi screens that that were, were such a boom in the uh, in the early parts of the of the century, um, because it's the same thing. You just generate libraries of these guide RNAs and together with Cas9 screen them for for phenotypes. And for instance, cell survival, you can do this in cancer cells to identify genes that stop cancer cells in their tracks. David, you mentioned uh, so many different types of cell types that scientists have been successful with. Um, Where are we with neurons? Or are there any other um, situations where the process has been really successful? So in in cell culture, neurons are are not really a problem. You can make edits. um, You can knock out genes in neurons using uh, CRISPR-Cas9. Of course, anything that that takes weeks to differentiate in cell culture is is more difficult. Um, So also the genome editing in neurons is a little bit more difficult than in a rapidly proliferating cell line. I think where the difficulty really comes is if you want to then apply this in vivo, in an an animal or in a clinic, because neurons, of course, they're the major cell type in the brain. The brain is a relatively large organ, and it's it's difficult to just get the delivery worked out for um, the combination of Cas9 and the guide RNAs. It's it's a relatively large enzyme, so it just barely fits in everyone's most popular uh, gene therapy vector AAV. Um, so I think we're, we're ch- still trying to optimize this, perhaps trying to identify a little bit shorter versions of of Cas9 so that they fit more comfortably in AAV. And once we get the delivery sorted out, then I think there's going to be a lot of potential for editing neurons in vivo as well. Yeah, and I can just add to that. A lot of researchers are um, trying to edit genes in human iPS-derived lineages. and it, it's still in the very infancy and earliest stages, and it, it's not trivial. Um, would you say? Would you agree with that, David? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, stem cells are, are more difficult as well. And, and that's because stem cells have this, this natural barrier against a genome edits. They want to remain picture perfect, no mutations. Um, so they, they try to resist uh, genome engineering as much as possible. So it, it is a little bit more difficult as well in stem cells because of that increased um, DNA repair capacity that they have. Yeah, so even with the, the, the trials and tribulations of using human iPS-derived um, cells to edit, um, a lot of researchers anticipate being able to use those cells to then infuse into patients um, to correct uh, whatever mutations need to be corrected for a specific genetic disorder. But recently, it seems that um, for a rare genetic retinal disease, so infants who are born with this disease are essentially blind, um, doctors have used CRISPR to try to treat patients by editing their genes while they're still inside their body. And so usually, like I mentioned before, scientists would take the cells out of the patient's body, edit their cells, and then put them back into their body. Since doctors have figured out a way to get CRISPR inside the body to do essentially a genetic surgery within the patient, do you know how, how successful that's been or, or if there's many more examples of this? Yeah, I think that is a very good point. Um, what, what we're seeing, if you look at, at the early stage clinical trials, and there is no phase three trial for any CRISPR drug uh, ongoing at the moment. So these are all early clinical trials where the primary endpoint is most likely safety and hints of efficacy, but certainly not proof of efficacy. Um, the vast majority are ex vivo edits where, where patient cells are taken out, for instance, their T cells are taken out, um, gene is changed, knocked out, inserted, and then after the cells are carefully checked, they're put back into the patient and allowed to do their job. The eye is indeed a unique organ in that researchers have already figured out to deliver drugs locally to the eye and there are a number of, of, of different drugs that, that are given uh, by inject, direct injections to the eye. So because of this very localized delivery that doesn't spread through the body, uh, researchers have, have used the same approach with CRISPR-Cas9 and do, just do editing in the retina um, of these patients. Um, so it's, it's a unique setting and it, it allows you to um, also very quickly understand if, if there is any um, improvement because of the, the rapid um, changes you can measure with, the, with visual acuity. So I think that that is a clear example of an in vivo edit and, and researchers are of course looking for other um, organs to treat. Um, but we need to figure out delivery. So an organ like the liver is so much larger than uh, the eye that a localized injection probably doesn't work. So you need to give an intravenous injection so that you hit the whole liver. So you need much more of the, the vectors and, and the reagents to uh, perform the edit. Well, that's so interesting. Yeah, it makes sense that if there is a direct local injection, um, to the area of interest, like the eye, uh, it's easier to, to use CRISPR by itself as a, as a therapy. I mean, it seems like there are some associated risks with gene editing. Anytime DNA is broken, when it's in the process of being repaired, there's the potential for 
um, genes or chromosomes to rearrange and potentially cause unwanted mutations that could lead to cancer. So if the wrong piece of DNA is cut, it would seem essential that the DNA to be cut outside of the patient and then infused back in. So if there are errors, it's not devastating to the patient. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on on that? Yeah, I think that that is indeed uh, probably the most most pressing point um, with with genetic engineering, genome engineering, in clinical uh, studies to understand the uh, the potential for off target edits and the the impact that those edits may have um, later on because. Um, Researchers are trying to optimize the enzymes, I guess, nine enzymes and select guide RNAs that uh, have uh, much higher fidelity, so much lower off-target sequences. But if you edit a million cells, there may be one cell where one gene is mutated um, that you didn't intend to. So with next-gen sequencing and, and other technologies, researchers are carefully looking to understand um, what what kind of frequency of off target uh, edits uh, we see, and also if there are particular hotspots uh, in the genome. Um, of course, genes that you'd want to avoid are, are like oncogenes, tumor suppressor genes. Um, and at the moment, it doesn't seem that there is a preference for such genes. Um, what, what people have reported is, is, is relatively random. So that is good. Um, and clearly, the, the ex vivo edits allow you to carefully test the cells or samples of cells to understand um, how, how what your targets look like. After Drs. Fisher and Peritor talked about how CRISPR works, Gina asked our guests to talk about some of the therapeutic areas where we might see CRISPR-based therapies hit the market in our lifetime and what the challenges to developing such therapies might be. So what other diseases do you see CRISPR being used uh, to treat? Is it used presently for any? Um, I've seen stories about treating sickle cell disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, so in clin- in early clinical studies, um, there, there, there are, are different platforms, not only CRISPR, but also some of the, the older, uh, the zinc fingers, the talents, megatalons. In, in early clinical studies for sickle cell disease, uh, where you have, an, again, an ex vivo treatment of, of progenitors um, or types of, of cancer, um, where it, it's something similar like CAR-Ts, where, where T cells are programmed to um, attack the cancer cells. So clearly these two areas, blood, blood-borne diseases, either genetic defects like sickle cell disease, beta thalassemia, or um, cancers of of blood cells um, are being addressed in in the clinic at the moment. Again, phase one, phase two trials, nothing in phase three. So David, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on some of the challenges in using CRISPR as a genetic therapy. Yeah, so there, there are, of course, always challenges with any new technology, but I think we are in a very fortunate time that um, gene therapy has also come of age. We also um, now have a number of oligonucleotide-based drugs, both siRNAs and antisense oligonucleotides, approved as, as drugs. Um, 
and it's really this this combination of understanding how to to generate a gene therapy vector for instance aav how to package that how to deliver that and understanding how we can also deliver these these oligonucleotide drugs um, that basically allows you as a sort of lego bricks put this this new platform together so we're using a bit of, of AAV gene therapy. We're using some, some RNA-based oligonucleotides, um, understanding how we've addressed delivery, um, immunogenicity, of course. So uh, some people will have pre-existing antibodies against AAVs because this is a virus that, although it, it is, is not pathogenic, it does uh, occur in the population. There could also be antibodies against uh, Cas9, but we have ways to address this, to understand uh, if, if there are any uh, consequences. So really learning from, from the other technologies really helps speed up um, the development of, of genetic engineering in the clinic. And when you mentioned ASOs, I was just curious, what why would someone develop an ASO versus a CRISPR for a genetic therapy? So a ASOs um, are, are wonderful tools and nowadays also wonderful drugs, but not every mutation can be addressed with an antisense oligonucleotide. There are basically two main mechanisms. One is, is exon skipping and the other one is, is, is knockdown of the messenger RNA through RNAsH. Um, but there are, of course, mutations um, where you don't want to reduce the expression of the messenger RNA or there is no exon to skip, but you want to fix a point mutation. And an ASO basically doesn't allow you to do that. So here, CRISPR-Cas9 um, would allow you to, for instance, replace that part of the, of the DNA with the mutation or with the new base editors, just flip one nucleotide back to what it's supposed to be. Um, so clearly there are mutations that you cannot address with an ASL, at least not with the current platform. And what about diseases that don't have a genetic defect? Can CRISPR help with something like HIV, where the, could the viral genes that have taken up residence in the genome of infected people be specifically cut out? In that instance, there are studies ongoing um, in HIV, and they're not trying to cut out the uh, the HIV genome from the the cells in the patient, but rather by taking T cells from the patient and making them resistant to HIV by taking out uh, one of the receptors for cell entry, um, you create cells that 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 you can put back in the patient and they will over time compete out the infected cells because they cannot be infected with HIV. And, in, and this is a way that researchers hope to potentially build a cure for HIV by finally taking out all the cells that are infected, replacing them with cells that are inert and, and resistant. I never realized how far we've come in the field of genetic engineering, and yet it seems as though we're only scratching the surface. In his long career as a molecular geneticist and in vitro discovery scientist, Dr. Fisher certainly has seen a lot. How will CRISPR impact his future projects and drug development in general? Karina wrapped up their conversation with an eye toward the future, 
getting Dr. Fisher's thoughts on what comes next. So, wow, it sounds like we might not be there yet for, for HIV, still in the earliest stages. Do you have any ideas of what the future holds for this editing? I, I know we talked about perhaps neurodegenerative diseases or um, cancer treatments. Um, do you, what do you see in the, in the near future? So what I think um, we'll, we'll see is um, more tools becoming um, identified. Um, so Cas9 was identified from one, one species of bacteria. As we all know, there are, are thousands, if not millions of different species of bacteria. And a large number of these will have similar enzymes. So we may find a, an enzyme that, that is just a bit smaller, fits more comfortably in a gene therapy vector, or we may find enzymes that have, have slightly different activity. Um, we've already seen base editors being engineered. Um, they're unfortunately at the moment rather large, so they don't fit very well into AAV. So we also need to improve upon that uh, to make them smaller and also understand uh, what their off-target activity is. Um, but I think with with all these these um, these steps being taken, we are going to build a platform that hopefully uh, at a certain point we can just plug and play different guide RNAs for different mutations and and uh, create a whole host of different drugs, all using the same principle with with just that that switch change to guide RNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice to hear that researchers are looking also outside of the Cas9 system for genetic engineering possibilities. Very exciting. Well, that was a really interesting conversation today. Thank you both for sharing your unique and really valuable perspectives. Thank you, Gina. You're welcome. It sounds as though CRISPR is worth the hype, and I'm excited to see where this new technology will take us. What excites you about what you heard today from our guests? What are your questions? Let us know by sending an email to vitalscience at crl.com. For our listeners who are looking for more information about what we covered with David and Karina today, please review our episode notes where you'll find links and resources to explore this topic further. Thank you all for joining us for another episode of Vital Science.